I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now I think Indonesia feels, and particularly within the foreign ministry, that it needs to seize the prerogative back on this Indo-Pacific concept. There are so many strategic uncertainties surrounding not just Japan, but at the global level. A military conflict is a much more distant threat to Pacific Islander than climate change, which is happening right now. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by Policy Forum and the National Security College at the ANU. And the region has certainly kept things fresh for us. We have seen India revoke Kashmir's semi-autonomous status, angering Pakistan and China. We have seen an Australian backbencher named Andrew Hastie draw attention to the PRC's communist ideology as a threat and a challenge for the region. And he has argued that the current rise of China may be similar to the rise of Germany prior to World War II. We have seen Beijing posture with troops in Guangdong province, which is next to Hong Kong, where protests have become increasingly violent and disruptive as all flights have been shut down out of Hong Kong airport in the 24 hours prior to recording this episode. And in the US, we have seen the ratcheting up of tariffs on Chinese imports and Beijing respond by threatening to cease all agricultural imports from the United States. And that acts as a backdrop for this episode of the NatSec Pod, where we bring you a second in a series of podcasts that have been spun off from a recent international conference we had here at the National Security College, looking at a free and open Indo-Pacific. The previous pod in this series was the Quad Pod, where we had experts in the studio talking from the perspectives of the four quadrilateral security dialogue nations being India, Australia, Japan and the US on their approach to minilateralism in the region and asking the question what the quad is, what it isn't and what's driving it. And in this episode, we are going to draw a line through the centre of the Indo-Pacific from Japan through Southeast Asia and Indonesia to the Pacific Island states in the south. We will be looking at how nations in the middle of this two-ocean sandwich are processing this new geopolitical concept and implementing it in their regional strategies. First, we'll be talking to Dr. Greta Nabs-Keller from the University of Queensland on how the Indo-Pacific concept is evolving in the minds of Indonesians and Southeast Asians in general. And then we'll chat to Dr. Joanne Wallace from the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre here at the ANU on where the Pacific Islands sit in this dynamic with a focus on their relationship between Australia 
and China. And lastly, we will speak to Dr. Hiroyasu Akutsu from the National Institute of Defence Studies in Tokyo on the main drivers for Japan's free and open Indo-Pacific strategy and how that country views the region. So, let's kick off with Greta, who is the manager of the Indonesia and Southeast Asia programs at the University of Queensland's International Development Unit, where her broader research interests include Indonesian civil-military relations, Indonesia-China relations, politico-security developments in Southeast Asia, and the Australia-Indonesian relationship. Greta has worked previously in senior policy roles in government that has seen her based in the Department of Defence in Canberra, as well as throughout the region in diplomatic postings. Let's hear from Greta now. G'day Greta, welcome to the National Security Podcast. Thank you very much Chris, it's a pleasure to be here today at the National Security College. And you're here as part of our international conference on a free and open Indo-Pacific and we are discussing the way that the region is essentially a confluence of strategies where we have seen China's Belt and Road Initiative spread throughout the region, we've seen India's Act East policy, we've seen Australia's foreign policy white paper come out that talks about the Indo-Pacific and we've seen both free and open Indo-Pacific strategies from America and Japan as well. Today we are going to be talking to Greta about Southeast Asia and Indonesia. So Greta, I might start off on just asking, um, how does Indonesia see the Indo-Pacific? Has it really internalised the Indo-Pacific as a strategy or is it still looking at the region a little bit more as the Asia-Pacific? Um, It's a good question, actually, Chris, because I think the first time that I noticed the use of Indo-Pacific in Indonesia's foreign policy guidance um, was in uh, Jokowi, the the current president's um, policy platform uh, in 2014, where it explicitly talked about an Indo-Pacific, but it was very much in domestic political terms, uh, what's called in Indonesian poros maritim dunia, or Indonesia's global maritime axis doctrine. And that was essentially a a maritime development doctrine, but it certainly had uh, foreign policy and defence elements of that. It committed Indonesia to an increase in defence spending, which incidentally they haven't achieved, 1.5% of GDP. And it it started to conceptualise uh, Indonesia, Indonesia's maritime geography, both in a development and a strategic sense, at being at the crossroads of two key oceans. So we we first saw this in Indonesia's strategic guidance around 2014 that I I first uh, noticed that. So yes, uh, the Indo-Pacific has been internalised within uh, Indonesia's um, foreign and strategic uh, policy, and indeed. Uh, since then, for a range of reasons, uh, Indonesia is now looking at um, reconceptualising uh, ASEAN, not within the Asia-Pacific, but indeed the broader Indo-Pacific region. Um, I think China's rise, uh, obviously Southeast Asian states like Indonesia are at the sort of front line effectively of South uh, China's um, assertion of its interests, particularly in uh, regional states exclusive economic zone and the importance for Indonesia and ASEAN more generally of balancing 
other key major powers are in Indonesia's case, of course, it shares the Indian Ocean. It's an Indian Ocean state along with India and, and in Jakarta's sought to enhance its uh, defence relationship and comprehensive strategic partnership with India. Japan has long been a critical source of FDI and increasingly uh, a, a, a bigger security partner to Indonesia and, of course, um, Australia and, and the US and South Korea and, of course, Russia's in the mix there as well. So, yes, in, uh, Indonesia has internalised the Indo-Pacific concept. Now, I think Indonesia feels, and particularly uh, the, within the foreign ministry, that uh, it needs to seize the prerogative back on this Indo-Pacific concept, this evolving concept. Um, in, Jakarta is very determined to preserve ASEAN centrality through the East Asia Summit mechanism and that the Indo-Pacific concept should be anchored within ASEAN-based mechanisms, principally the East Asia, Asia so, Summit. So you think there's a little bit of a concern in Jakarta and maybe elsewhere in Southeast Asia that say the Indo-Pacific or, or essentially the Quad mm. may be overshadowing ASEAN's centrality in the region? I don't know if, if the term's overshadowing, but I, I think uh, with rising geopolitical tensions, uh, just some of the sheer policy complexities and discomfort around how to manage China's rise and possibly perceive US retrenchment from the region, that Indonesia is looking that ASEAN must maintain its relevance. And you might be aware, Chris, that ASEAN has been divided in recent years. We've seen um, a failure to issue our joint communiques, the first time in 2012 in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, second time in Laos. So, so Indonesia is acutely aware of of, of as ASEAN's primus inter pares actor, first amongst equals and one of the key thought leaders behind ASEAN over the decades and its strategic buffer function is acutely aware that if ASEAN and Indonesia does not seize the initiative on this new evolving Indo-Pacific concept, others will. So it's fundamentally about maintaining ASEAN's centrality and relevance in a reconceptualized uh, Asia-Pacific order to include the Indian Ocean. Yeah, so th this mm. is almost circling back to Cold War times. I mean, like th this is part of the reason why ASEAN were, was created as to have regional resilience so that it wasn't torn apart by the great power actors. And as you mentioned, China is rising and the US, there is concern that the US may be receding a bit from the region or at least ceding some of its power in the region to China. Is this almost deja vu all over again? How has the rise of China and the US, essentially the US under Trump and with the, the rise of China in the region or the emergence of China in the region, how has Indonesia and Southeast Asia adapted to this new landscape? Yeah, I think you I think you're right. I think Chris, um, whether it's a return of the Cold War, because I don't think we're quite at a at a at a in a bipolar, truly bipolar context here. We're all grappling with what we are dealing with here. Um, but I think the strategic buffer function of ASEAN, which was first conceived in its inception in 1967, has become even more relevant uh, and even more salient. And so I think. Um, it's important you mentioned resilience. That's that's really important because from Jakarta's perspective, which permeated ASEAN more broadly, and I'm not to diminish the, the role of other ASEAN states um, in 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 ASEAN's you know 
intellectual, you know, foundations and framework because, you know, equally Singapore and Vietnam and Malaysia and the Philippines have had a role as well as some of the other mainland states, are Thailand. But I think uh, Indonesia and ASEAN more broadly, the the sense of resilience within their domestic polities and, and at the national level is fundamentally or inextricably linked to broader resilience at the regional level as expressed through ASEAN. So basically the um, the thesis is, the premise is that if, you, if, if Southeast Asia is strong, it fulfills its strategic buffer function more effectively and is able to manage the regional distribution of power, which is which was always its undeclared strategic function since 1967. So now Trump is a, 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 a cause for uncertainty for many of us. Mm-hmm, Indeed, mm-hmm. In, in Canberra as well. Um, you know, where is US uh, foreign policy and grand strategy heading under Donald Donald Trump? And 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 indeed, there's some uncertainty. But we've we've seen a, you know, a, 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 I think a, a greater assertion under Donald Trump, uh, a greater pushback against China, both in in trade terms and uh, regional strategic terms. So these rising geopolitical tensions, although Southeast Asia and Indonesia has real concerns about China. And although Jakarta does not have a declared territorial dispute with Beijing officially, in effect, it actually does. And that's something I can expand on a bit later. Um, So yes, the strategic buffer function of uh, ASEAN has become more important. The other thing I'd say, Chris, is if you look at the longer term view in historical terms, ASEAN has long been about China, how to enmesh, you know, this giant, both in economic and political security terms, how to enmesh it within regional uh, multilateral fora, to socialise it within norms of peaceful dispute resolution, you know, non-interference, um, a rules-based order. So all these these fundamental tenets that are that are in, within the Treaty of Amity, Amity and Cooperation, the ASEAN Charter, um, these are all, all under increasing stress. So I think China's rise, ASEAN's long been about China and managing China's rise, and at the same time, ASEAN has also been very keen through through fora like the ASEAN Regional Fora Forum, sorry, to keep the US strategically engaged in Southeast Asia, and we saw that after. After the withdrawal of uh, US uh, forces in the 90s from uh, Subic Naval Base and Clark Airfield, that that part of the the raison d'etre of the ASEAN Regional Forum is to keep Washington engaged in the region. So I think that's been a level of continuity. But of course, China's increasingly assertive behaviour, Trump's sort of erratic uh, domestic and foreign policy posture is causing um, uncertainty. So hence, as regional states talk about an Indo broader Indo Pacific order. Jakarta wants to be in the driver's driver's seat and 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 find a consensus within ASEAN uh, on a new reconceptualised order and the institutional mechanisms that would underpin that. Now you've mentioned some of the territorial disputes or. Um Territorial clashes or disagreements, and in Indonesia's case, there's no declarative clash of sovereignty, but there is a problem over the exclusive economic zone around the Natuna Islands. Can you go into how Indonesia has approached that um, disagreement with China, and, and, and has that changed the way that it approaches China in terms of its foreign policy? 
yes, look, it, it's been really fascinating for someone like myself who's, who who finds Indonesia-China relations absolutely compelling because uh, to divert for one moment, I mean, um, you know, the, the military ascended to power in Indonesia on the, on the back of a, a bloody um, suppression of the PKI, the Indonesian Communist Movement. So Chinese back subversion movements were, were actually... Uh, part of what drove the formation of ASEAN um, in, in uh, 1967 and the mid-1960s. Now, on um, Indonesia's exclusive economic zone, there's, there's two ways of looking at it. At the multilateral level, I think uh, Jakarta's been concerned about China in the South China Sea since 1994 with Mischief Reef mm-hmm. when, when China basically um, uh, built a permanent establishments or structures in 1994 in Mischief Reef uh, near the Philippines. And and, and since um, the 90s, there have been both informal mechanisms to keep China at the table, uh, talking about uh, responsible behaviour in the South China Sea. And of course, the 2002 Declaration of Conduct of Parties on the South China Sea. Now, the efficacy of the DOC, let alone the Code of Conduct, ASEAN-China Code of Conduct has a big question mark over it. It's been incredibly protracted process. Um, the Declaration of, of Conduct has never been fully implemented. Uh, ASEAN and China are still discussing the implementation of agreed Code of Conduct. So, so are we assuming that the, the China strategy here is just to play the clock out? So once once there, if there ever is a Code of Conduct declared, that China has already changed the the balance on the ground and that the Code of Conduct is, is irrelevant anyway? Do you think that's the play here? Uh, look, uh, you'd, you'd have to interpret in that way. I mean, you know, it, it's been so protracted um, that China's effectively, you know, land reclamation activities, militarisation uh, is effectively changing the status quo. So from ASEAN's perspective, they are keen to keep China at the table. So there's some sense of, uh, I guess, uh, some sense of achievement or satisfaction is as long as we've got Beijing at the table, that, that things aren't too like bad. That almost seems like a losing yeah. strategy, though. I mean, mm, like if China's mm, at the mm, table, mm. but China's almost laughing in their face. China's doing whatever they want off the side of the table, rebuilding islands and sending mm. uh, strategic bombers and, and basing missiles on these islands while they're at the table. What difference does mm. it make if they're at the table? It seems like to me that that's a bit of a losing strategy. It's it's it 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 is, it is difficult, I think, for um for, from an external perspective to understand. But I I believe that 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 from Indonesia's point of view, they would like to keep China engaged, engage in dialogue, and they possibly has been some progress on the DOC and the COC uh, about the establishment of regional hotlines mm. um, between foreign ministries and and uh, the cues the uh, conduct of um, uh, unplanned encounters Inter- at Inter- sea. Inter- I, pro- sea. I probably right. got that terribly wrong. Sorry, Chris. But the cues. So I think there has been um, some progress, but the cynic, and you, it would never be declared you know, publicly, but the, the, the cynics and, and, and perhaps those um, offline discussions would, would, would have to question about China's genuine commitment yeah. on achieving a fully binding code of Conduct. Yeah, I, and, I, I proudly wear the badge of a cynic here. Yeah. <laughs> and also, look, this is really um, 
been a challenge for ASEAN cohesion, of course, because it's the South China Sea and mention of the South China Sea in the ASEAN communications, uh, sorry, ASEAN, ASEAN communicates, Chris, that uh, has really been at the heart of uh, disunity in ASEAN. Now, we saw that uh, most pointedly in 2012 in Phnom Penh in Cambodia, when Cambodia was the chair of ASEAN, and it was um, such a debacle, uh, apparently, that um, yeah, the microphones actually died every time the South China Sea topic oh, no. was was broached. It was it, it was it's like that, watching television in China. It's it was that overt, um, and of course in 2016 again in in Laos. So you know, Indonesia that's alarmed Indonesia the lack of unanimity in uh, in ASEAN and and China's ability to divide and rule over is, the South China Sea is, issue. Is, yeah. is that divide between the archipelagic nations and the mainland nations? Is there a divide between the maritime and the mainland Southeast Asia, or is it a little bit more nuanced than that? It's a little bit more nuanced, um, Chris. I mean, the, the scholars and policy makers have in recent years tended to to make that distinction between the mainland and the maritime Southeast Asian states. And in, and in broad terms, the mainland Southeast Asian states, and we're talking about, you know, Cam- Cambodia, Laos, Laos uh, Myanmar, and to a lesser degree, Thailand, um, have, have uh, particularly Cambodian Laos have been, uh, Laos, sorry, and Myanmar have been cam- uh, characterised as client states of Beijing. Now, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Vietnam, of course, is the complete outlier here. Absolutely. I mean, you know, if anyone knows a history of enmity, it goes back centuries between the Vietnam and the Chinese. And indeed, I think the Chinese are... Uh, uh, didn't have it all their way in the um, uh, Sino-Vietnamese conflict in, in 1979, you know, with the combat-hardened Vietnamese troops against the PLA. So that's a history of enmity. And, of course, if Vietnam has its own territorial concerns in the, in the, in the Paracel Islands. So I think... We've also seen in terms of the maritime states who who perhaps were characterised more as, as states that sought more equidistance in their relations with major powers, but we've seen some shifts there. Um, Malaysia, interestingly, under Mahathir has kind of refuted uh, an over-reliance on, on Beijing and particularly with regard to um, some infrastructure projects. Mahathir has explicitly uh, spoken about the risk of debt um, in Chinese infrastructure programs and also the Philippines, of course. Now, the Philippines took Beijing. There was a permanent court of arbitration rule, ruling, the UNCLOS um, permanent court of arbitration ruling uh, on the South China Sea that did not go in Beijing's favour. But that, of course, was not under Rodrigo Duterte. So under President Duterte, we have a... ASEAN state, sometimes characterised as the weakest link when it comes to China, has actually re-embraced Beijing and sort of distanced himself, a treaty ally from the US. So it's, I guess my response is you can't simplify and generalise uh, you know, a difference between how mainland and maritime Southeast Asian states are, are responding to China. It really depends on domestical, domestic political uh, context and, and it's quite fluid. Myanmar's very interesting, like Indonesia, very strategically located between India and China, another Indian Ocean state as well. And uh, Myanmar's, in some ways, the Mayatsuni Dam case has highlighted that there is some pushback against Beijing and over-reliance on Beijing. So even Myanmar is seeking to balance and find some equidistance, particularly between India and and China in that area. The one thing, Chris, I did want to pick up with, with Indonesia in terms of territorial disputes is um, 
Indonesia does not have uh, a formal territorial dispute uh, with China, um, but there's some ambiguity over the reach of China's nine-dash line territorial claims into uh, Indonesia's exclusive economic zone near the Natuna Islands and the South China Sea. What's happened recently has been very interesting because uh, Jakarta's has been, in, you know, traditionally reticent to publicly criticise China. But then we saw a series of events in 2016. We saw um, China, armed China maritime surveillance vessels intercede in an Indonesian Ministry of Maritime Affairs and Fisheries um, visit, search, seizure and boarding of a uh, illegal Chinese fishing vessel inter- intercede and push that fishing vessel back out of Indonesia's exclusive economic zone. One of uh, Indonesia's fast missile corvettes actually um, uh, seized and boarded a uh, Chinese uh, illegal fishing vessel. Now, this played out very publicly in Jakarta. So um, Indonesia's Maritime and uh, Fisheries Minister Susi Pujiastuti, very popular Minister Indonesia, she publicly criticised China. She summoned the Chinese back ambassador, which is a breach of protocol because it should be the foreign minister. And it all played out very publicly, Chris, uh, in Indonesia, which was quite unusual because Indonesia is very mindful of domestic political sensitivities around the ethnic Chinese population. And there's always that risk with the rise of identity politics and social media for the China threat presented by mainland China in the South China Sea and in Chinese migrant workers and, of course, the Belt Road Initiative and perceptions of of debt diplomacy um, conflating with residual resentment and distrust towards Indonesia's ethnic Chinese minority. Now, in the uh, Natuna Islands, it, uh, China started de- declaring the last few years was traditional fishing grounds and, and then made some comments that the Nine Dash Line did apply to the Natuna Islands area. So Indonesia has responded to that and has indeed for a number of years. They're seeking economically development, develop the Natuna Island chain. They're working with Japan, particularly uh, in the Natuna Islands, and they're beefing up their military capabilities in the Natuna Islands. So you've got the deployment of the Apaches. You've got some new marine deployments. You have a um, submarine base uh, planned for Palu on the coast of Sulawesi, South China Sea facing. So Indonesia, like many Southeast Asian states, is is seeking to, to, to balance, you know, hedging and engagement. It's all a complex policy mis- mix, which makes for some level of discomfort in Jakarta. There was certainly yeah. some strong signalling from Jakarta around the way it was approaching uh, the sovereignty and the EEZ around Tuna Island when mm. Jokowi actually went to the island and visited some of these battleships as well. Yes, Chris, um, on the on the Natuna Islands, after those series of incidents and skirmishes I, I mentioned, um, the Indonesian naval ship, the corvette, the Kri Imam Bonjol, was actually symbolically used for a cabinet meeting, and and that w- that was a very symbolic meeting because it was an assertion of Indonesia's territorial sovereignty. So you had the president, key cabinet ministers uh, on the Kri Imam Bonjol, which had been involved in the uh, arrest and detention. Of of the Chinese crew uh, um, the, in the weeks uh, preceding. So certainly uh, Indonesia is 
in, in my sense, there, there was a red line that China crossed. China has backed off uh, a little bit in its activities in the I, I, around the Natuna Islands, and uh, Indonesia, I think, has fundamentally made a uh, statement in that that cabinet meeting that 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 uh, they will, will assert with military asset, assets their sovereign territorial rights vis-a-vis Beijing and illegal fishing uh, vessels in particular. Absolutely interesting times in the Indo-Pacific. Dr Greta Nabskeller, thanks for joining us on the National Security Podcast. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you. And a big thanks to Greta for popping into the studio to chat to us on Southeast Asia's approach to the Indo-Pacific. Now let's hear from Dr Joanne Wallace, who is a Senior Lecturer at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre here at the ANU. Prior to her career as an academic, Joanne was a practising lawyer and was admitted as a barrister and solicitor in the Supreme Court of Victoria and High Court of Australia. Since then, Joanne has developed her career as an academic focusing on the Pacific Islands and regional security, where she has been a Fulbright Scholar and has also taught at the Australian War College, University of Cambridge, University of Melbourne and Swinburne University, as well as here at the Australian National University. Let's hear from Joanne now. G'day Joanne, welcome to the National Security Podcast. Hi Chris, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Now, I just want to start off by giving the listeners a little bit of an experience of a conference of ours that that you were at recently. It's probably my favourite experience at any conference I've ever been to. You know what I'm going to talk about. (laughs) You you were delivering a uh, presentation on how the Pacific Islands fit into the Indo-Pacific and you saw someone in the audience What were they doing? (laughs) Well, he was fast asleep. Um, In his defence, I think he was one of our Japanese guests, so he may have been extremely tired and jet lagged, but it was quite obvious that he was very fast asleep. His head was back. I think he may have even been snoring. Yeah, I was standing near him and I could hear him and, <laughs> and and it was a little bit too much for you not to pull your attention away from and there was a little bit of uncontrollable giggling that then spread, spread throughout the whole audience. <laughs> I, I, I had to go in and wake the guy. Actually, it might have been Rory who went in it and woke the Rory. guy up so we could get the conference back on track and the poor guy had no idea what was going on. All he could hear was this laughter and everyone <laughs> looking at him. It was probably my favourite part of any <laughs> conference I've ever been to. Yeah, it's funny. I teach undergrads. You'd think I'd be used to people being asleep, but, you know, it was quite... Un- I think it was the fact that he was so obviously asleep. Yeah, yeah. He, he was, was having a good snooze, yeah, that guy. it was pretty hilarious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So as I said, you, you were talking to our conference about the Pacific Islands, and this was couched in the wider context of the Indo-Pacific, and basically the confluence of strategies that we're finding in the Indo-Pacific these days. Um, When we talk about the Indo-Pacific as a concept and a strategy, do we often overlook the role and the place of the Pacific Islands? I think in its original formulation, the Pacific Islands weren't given a huge amount of consideration. And it was very interesting. We just had a workshop, which we organised with NSC, um, two weeks ago at the ANU on the Pacific geopolitics. And we used the question, how does the Pacific fit into the Indo-Pacific as our um, animating question? And it became clear hearing from speakers who had been involved in in formulating the Indo-Pacific term that it was very much a policy construct that was aimed at thinking about how um, states could respond to an increasingly assertive China and at keeping the US engaged in the region and that the Pacific Ocean was seen 
as a site where that potential contestation could occur, but not as active agents in their own right that could have a role in the in you know that could have a role in negotiating what the geopolitics. Um, so that that they're more passengers of the geopolitical yeah, flows. More sites where contestation takes place than as active agents mm, in contestation mm. or. That, um, that in preventing must, contestation, hopefully. That must be very hard to accept for the people who live in the Pacific Islands. Yeah, I mean, look, without, I mean, I can't speak for Pacific Islanders, but I can um, speak, you know, repeat what they have said. And, you know, Dame Meg Taylor, the Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum, um, has made a number of speeches, very considered speeches, in which she has talked about the challenges and the risks for Pacific Island states of being essentially dragged into what they perceive to be geopolitical competition um, that is not something that they want to be involved in. The Pacific Islands Forum um, articulates this idea of friend to all, and that is very much um, how, how they're trying to present their role in, in broader geopolitical conversations is that they don't want to be forced into a situation where they feel that they have to make a choice between um, Australia and the US and, and like-minded states or China. And um, it is quite frustrating for them because um, for a lot of Pacific Island states, they don't, they don't share the same perceptions of China that they're increasingly dominant within Australia and the US. I mean, it was just in the US Indo-Pacific strategy document that was released a few weeks ago, very explicitly called China a revisionist state. Um, Pacific Island states don't necessarily share that view. So it's quite frustrating for them that they feel that they're being um, talked over and and being lumped into um, a cat- you know categories and ideas in that debate that they don't necessarily want to be part of. We talk about China's presence in the Pacific Islands a lot lately. Is China's activity in this region a recent issue or has it only really reached the broader consciousness since China became more more assertive in areas like the East and South China Sea? Yeah, I mean, China has been in the Pacific for a long time. Primarily, it was in the 70s and more so in the 80s. It was in the Pacific primarily to get diplomatic recognition because it was in the in, with the switch from Taiwan and China um, receiving diplomatic re- recognition internationally and there was a there was competition between those two entities for diplomatic recognition in the Pacific as the situation in Taiwan changed and there was the truce reached in the early 2000s between China and Taiwan regarding diplomatic seeking diplomatic recognition from states that became less significant than other interests for China. And I think we can see what China has been doing in the Pacific is is a, a consequence of its broader um, confidence and assertiveness internationally. It's very much, I think it's very difficult, it would be very difficult to say that what China is doing in the Pacific is a specific policy that China has adopted to target that region. It's very much an offshoot of its just broader confidence and assertiveness internationally. Australian concerns about China and the Pacific have become a lot more prominent publicly over the last, you know, five or so years. And that reflects broader concerns about China internationally. But Australia has always been concerned about external states being present in the Pacific. And in my recent book, I trace this right back to pre-Federation. The colonial governments were concerned about external states. So the, that long thread of, of anxiety, strategic anxiety about the region, you know, has stretched throughout Australia's colonial and post-Federation history. But, and you know, the current target is China, but during the Cold War, it was Russia, it was Libya. So... so you just said Libya. Yeah. 
That sound, that, that's, that's a very interesting country to be concerned about in the South Pacific region. Can you give us a little bit of context there? Oh, I mean, this was during the height of the Cold War mm. and Libya was making overtures to certain Pacific states. You know, China is just the latest external state in the region that, that Australia is concerned about. Having said that, although I'd argue that Australia's always been concerned about external states in the region, I think that the, the tenor of concern and of public discourse about China is a bit different to what we've seen before. I mean, myself and others have drawn analogies to concerns about Soviet, you know, um, interest in the Cold War. But I think that we're seeing with China that there's the concern is is escalating to a higher level. And there's a debate about how right or wrong that concern is and, and the grounding and the bases for that concern. Do you have a position in that debate? It's interesting you ask that. I'm writing a, I'm writing a piece for Aspies, The Strategist, mm-hmm. and it's taken me two weeks to write because it's very hard to crystallise my position. Mm. Because, Do you find yourself challenging your own position the more you think about it? I think there's, there's two, and this is what I battle with, and I think this is what the debate debates about Pacific geopolitics in Australia, this is a very superficial generalisation, but I think debates about Pacific geopolitics in Australia are polarised between two positions. There's of people who see the Pacific from a strategic and defence perspective. Now, by necessity, they take a long-term view. You know, defence planning is happens decades out if you're going to think about acquisition and capability and so forth and, and force planning. And in general terms, there is a concern from people that hold that perspective about China's presence in the Pacific and about Pacific Island states becoming potential stepping stones for China to pose a threat to Australia. Now, that, that idea... Is, is something that, not specifically China, but the idea that the that Pacific Island states could be a stepping stone towards Australia, you know, has been in Australian strategic um, consciousness for decades. We saw it during the Second World War with the Japanese advance. For the last 30 years, Defence White Papers have repeated that as a primary strategic interest for Australia. So it's not an unreasonable position to hold. And reports last year about the potential for a, a Chinese base opening in Vanuatu whether right or wrong, do lend credence or, you know, at least make people that hold that perspective concerned. On the other side of the debate, there are those who tend to take a more Pacific-focused view. They're a lot more sceptical about what China is doing in the Pacific and about what consequences that might have for Australia. And their primary concern is about what consequences this has for Pacific Island states. And this reflects that view that I was talking about earlier about Pacific Island states being dragged into geopolitical competition that they don't want to be part of. And I think what I'm currently wrestling with is finding the middle ground between the two. It's being able to articulate Australia's concerns about the Pacific and being able to discuss how they are legitimate concerns. They're not, you know, Australia does have legitimate strategic interests in the Pacific Islands, but balancing that with um, some nuance and scepticism about what China's presence in the region means, and then about what that means for how Australia approaches the region. There was quite a number of very expert and well-informed Pacific Island speakers at our workshop, and just as an advertisement, all the workshop panels are available on the ANU Bell School website for people to listen to. I think there's a real need for Australian debates to to find this middle ground and then to think about how we speak to Pacific Islanders about what our internal debates are saying because um, Professor Steve Rituva, he's from University of Canterbury in New Zealand, but he's a Fijian. He has spoken and... 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Published on the patronizing and arrogant way that some, and he's very kindly says external or foreign powers, but, you know, part of that would be Australia, about the way that we Australians can currently talk to the Pacific. We, and I think, I'm certainly going to be getting on to Australia's yeah. relationship with the South Pacific uh, later in the pod. I wanted to stick for now on the geopolitical aspect. You, you mentioned the discussion last year about the possibility of uh, China and Vanuatu building a base, in a naval base in Vanuatu, a claim that both China and Vanuatu vehemently denied. We have seen, I think it was on May the 30th, an announcement that both countries are looking at developing a port in Pentecost, which is one of Vanuatu's northern islands. Are these two issues related in any way or are they completely separate? Look, the military... The military basing and ports issue is quite a fraught one. I mean, it's very difficult for someone like me who doesn't have top secret security clearance. And I'm aware that perhaps things are known at those levels that that aren't known publicly. But on the publicly available information, it doesn't seem that there was any intention with the in the reports in April last year that, that, that the port that was being developed at Luganville in Vanuatu was to have military purposes. And the same goes for more recent reports about Pentecost. But I guess what lurks in the back of my mind is although there may be no intention at the moment for port redevelopments to have a military purpose, and although Pacific states you know, they they are actively able to exercise their agency in their dealings with China. And although they make it may make it very clear to China that they that they don't want those ports to have any military purposes. I guess having a strategic hat on, you do worry about a situation where a port is built that could be converted to a military purpose and at a time in the future, and I'm not saying in the near future, but in decades that that port could be forcibly converted for a military purpose. And that's what worries me, and this is another thing that I'm wrestling with in my own thoughts, and there are no easy answers to this, is thinking about Pacific Island states' agency in these debates, and they are able to exercise their agency very well. And I mentioned Professor Steve Rituva a moment ago, and he recently published an excellent piece on the Australian Outlook, the AIIA's blog, And I won't be able to quote it exactly, but he was talking about the very shrewd and clever ways in which Pacific Island states are able to to exercise their agency with respect to external states like China and Australia. I guess what worries me is how long they can continue to do that. And in the current atmosphere, we're not in a situation of war. And thank goodness we're not in a situation of Cold War, despite what some commentators like to talk about in the Indo-Pacific. But what worries me is in two, three decades in the future, we might be in a situation where relations between Australia, the US and China are more fraught and those ports could be forcibly converted to a military purpose. 
And if China really wanted to do that, there's nothing the Pacific Island states could do to stop them. They can protest, but they, they have no military capability to match if China was you, to. You would think that this is when they, the relationship with us and the US and New Zealand may be leveraged. Yeah, it's a very difficult conversation to have because people like myself are very respectful of the agency of Pacific Island states and really want to foreground their ability to represent themselves and to act um, in their own interests. But you kind of, if you do think from that more defence strategic perspective, you do kind of think about, you have to think about the worst case scenarios. Absolutely. And and, and, and yeah. it's it's not all just military relations. There's a lot of economic relations with China's Belt and Road Initiative that a lot of the Pacific Island states have signed up to it. What What is the nature of the investment that we're seeing in, in the Pacific Islands and how well is that being received? The nature of the investment both under BRI and under the general Chinese aid program, which tends to come in soft loans anyway, so it's not dissimilar to BRI financing, is focused on infrastructure. Some of the problems have arisen, you know, with project management, a a dominance of Chinese labour and not enough opportunities for local involvement. But that is changing. And I mean, I, I am no expert on this and I would direct listeners to the work of colleagues like Graham Smith. I think the the situation is a lot more nuanced than than is often presented in the media. And people like um, Dan McGarry, and he's a, a journalist at the Vanuatu Post, and he has published and, and tweeted quite extensively, having seen a lot of the, the, the documents that at least the Vanuatu government have entered into with China. And there's a lot more a lot more gray areas than than the black and white way in which they're often presented. I'm probably not as concerned about BRI investments in the Pacific, as as some commentators are, but they are another ex- exercise of Chinese influence in the region. And what China does very well with its investments is that it builds very visible examples of its aid. There is a building or a swimming pool or a road. And that compares to what Australia tends to do, which is much more invisible, you know, governance reform, law and order reform and so forth, which you can't easily point to. You can't sort of stand there and go, here's an example of Australian aid. And the Chinese approach does have quite a lot of um, merit in the region in terms of getting China attention and credit for what they do. Now, I, I kind of have mixed feelings about how Australia is responding to that because with Australia's step up in the Pacific that we announced in 2017 and really fleshed out last year, there has been a re-emphasis on infrastructure. What concerns me is that, and our former Foreign Minister Julie Bishop has stated publicly that we will compete with China on infrastructure investment in the region. What concerns me is that we compete with China and neglect other aspects of our aid program. And there has been examples of aid projects in, in the Pacific that Australia runs being defunded and not necessarily because we're redirecting the funding to infrastructure, but, you know, things that, that have funded health projects and so forth. And that, look, they've been defunded for a range of reasons. But what worries me is that we get swept up in this narrative of competition with China. And we think that we need to compete with China doing exactly what they're doing. And it means that we lose other aspects of our program that are very valuable. They're not sexy. They're not something that can be stood in front of with a plaque and pointed to. But we are a different kind of state to China. And what worries me is that we are encouraged to compete with China on China's terms and we forget who we are and what our terms are and that we offer the Pacific something different to China. And broadening the view out in terms of Australia's relationship with the region, 
just in a few short words, how would you describe Australia's track record of involvement with the Pacific Islands? It's ebbed and flowed. And, you know, in my book, which I will plug now, <laughs> Please go ahead. it's called Pacific Power, um, Australia's Strategy in the Pacific Islands. In that book, I trace Australia's engagement with the Pacific Islands. It's ebbed and flowed. It tends to peak when we're concerned about the region and then to drop away when we're not. Mm. So you could see that when there was instability in the Solomon Islands, in Bougainville, in Papua New Guinea, we, we saw the Ramsey, we saw um, peace monitoring in Bougainville, we saw support in Nauru, we had a stabilisation force in Tonga. But then when the situation calms down, our attention shifts and then again now we see concern about China and our attention is back in a, in a big way. And Pacific Island states aren't stupid. You know, they recognise that the flux in Australian attention and it's, it's been to our detriment. And what we need to do is maintain a much more coherent and continuing focus on the region that builds confidence in Pacific states that we're there to stay and that we're there because of Pacific states, because Pacific states are interest, of interest to us on their own merits not just because we perceive them at that point in time to be a threat. And, you know, I've got some optimism about Prime Minister Scott Morrison because he does seem to have a personal commitment to the region. He has undertaken a number of visits to Fiji in particular in a private capacity because of his church links. You know, in his discourse about the region, speaking about the region as family, I have optimism that he is focused on the region and therefore that the government is, but I just want that focus to continue and to be the right kind of focus. Hmm. So let, let's have a bit of a look at that. We, in 2017, we saw the, the step-up approach uh, towards the region, which was part of Australia's foreign policy white paper. And then we've recently seen from the Morrison government uh, their discussion on the Pacific pivot. What is the substance of these policies and, and how have they been received by the regional leaders? And there's one leader in particular that I'm looking at here as well, and that's a Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands, um, Manasseh Sogavare. And I ask because he was not particularly supportive of the 2003 Australian-led Ramsey intervention of that country. So how, how are these step-up and pivots being seen in the region? Does it look like Australia's just recommitting to the region because we're a little bit concerned about China? Or is there a little bit more optimism that we're realising that this is part of our region and we need to be an active and supportive player here? Well, I can't speak for the for the region. I can only, I mean, I'm always very careful only to speak from the Australian perspective. Yeah, ask, asking yeah, for your observations From, a, from an region. Australian perspective of how Pacific leaders um, seem to be responding to the step up. It does seem that there is optimism. The step up seems to be welcome. And I think that one of the most important aspects of the step up and what the the current government has done and is doing well is the showing up. Mm. Myself and others have written extensively about the importance of people-to-people links between Australia and the Pacific. And Sean Dorney actually published an excellent book called The Embarrassed Colonialist. And that was focusing on Australia's relationship with Papua New Guinea And in that book, he makes a very convincing case about how Australia has sort of had turned its back on Papua New Guinea and the surprising way in which that had happened, given that we had been the colonial power, that so many Australians had lived or worked or even been born there. And that sort of applies across the region. So the fact that Maurice Payne and Scott Morrison have been showing up, and Alex Hawke now is our as our new minister for the region, have been showing up in the region is incredibly important and welcomed by Pacific leaders. 
So I think there is optimism, but I think there's also understandable scepticism as well, given our past form for focusing on the region and then turning away. I think there's always hope that that this time we will actually stick and that the step up will be a stay up. A step up will be a stay up. I like well, it. I don't know if that's... <laughs> that's fantastic. You mentioned Bougainville in an answer before. Now, this is a uh, an island off the coast of Papua New Guinea that has experienced some unrest uh, over the last couple of decades. And in October 17 this year, we will see a long-awaited referendum on independence. How do you see this referendum playing out and and what will the aftermath look like and especially what is the impact of the changing government in Papua New Guinea likely to have on that vote? Well, I suppose there's a couple of elements to my answer. The first one is will the vote happen? I think it will given that you know, it has been publicly announced, although recognising that it has already been delayed once. And that was over funding, I believe? Yeah. And fund, I mean, this has been a perennial issue in the relationship between the Bougainville Autonomous Government and the Papua New Guinea Government has been funding. And one of the rationales for having the long transition, the long period of autonomy before the referendum vote, was that it would give Papua New Guinea time to demonstrate to Bougainville the benefits of remaining within Papua New Guinea. And I think it's fair to say that Papua New Guinea has not taken advantage of that opportunity. It has constantly delayed funding, announced funding that hasn't followed through. And at the Joint Supervisory Board meetings between Bougainville and Papua New Guinea leaders have often been quite tense on this issue. And this has been affecting preparations for the for the referendum vote. But I think it will go ahead because I think that there is so much momentum um, within Bougainville for the vote to happen that it would be difficult to be to continue to delay it. Whether it happens in October, though, or a bit later is an open question. If the vote goes ahead, I think it's fairly... And recognising I have done field work in Bougainville, but I haven't done it for several years, so this a lot of it is just anecdotal and from secondary sources. But I think the feeling from people I've spoken to is that, that, that independence will be successful that, in that vote. The question then is how the Papua New Guinea government responds. Am I right to say that it's not actually a binding result? Yeah, well, this is this is the key element, is that under the Bougainville Peace Agreement, the result of the referendum has to be ratified by the, by the PNG parliament. Mm. That ratification is by no means ensured. I think that if the vote was overwhelmingly in favour of independence, it would be very difficult for the Papua New Guinea government not to ratify. But... A lot of memory of the Bougainville conflict and of the consequences that it had for PNG more broadly. I mean, it brought down a prime minister, it brought down um, Sir Julius Chan. A lot of that memory has faded. And I'm not sure that there is necessarily enough members of the PNG parliament who would vote in support of the vote. Of the, of the referendum results. So that is a bit of an open question. You, you just mentioned Sir Julius Chan being brought down, and that was linked to the Sandline affair. This was a situation where the PNG government actually hired some mercenaries to come in and to quell some of the uprising in Bougainville. And that frames the issue in that there has been actual unrest in Bougainville. Is there much possibility that we could see unrest if the vote doesn't go the way of the people of Bougainville or even some of the people holding power in Bougainville? I think if the outcome of the vote is independence, it will whether whether violence reoccurs will depend on what the PNG how the PNG government responds. I think if they ratify the result, then the likelihood of violence is very little because there would be no need for it. 
But if the PNG parliament drags its heels on ratifying the result, it's not unforeseeable that violence could reoccur. There was a weapons disposal process during the Poganville peace process, but that was incomplete. And weapons have come across the border from Solomon Islands. That's quite a porous border, the Solomon Islands-Boganville border. And weapons have gone in both directions during the Solomons conflict. That was also an issue. So it's not unforeseeable. Having said that, Boganvillians have worked incredibly hard since the conflict ended to build peace and to reconcile. And I don't know if there's enough appreciation of how much that Bougainville has done and how much they've achieved. It's not been a perfect process, but I tell you what, if you can if you compare what ha- has happened in Bougainville to what has happened almost anywhere else in the world where there's been an incredibly violent conflict, and people often forget that the Bougainville conflict in numbers, the, the number of deaths doesn't sound huge when we compare it to conflicts in Africa, say. But as the proportion of Bougainvillians, a huge number of Bougainvillians were were killed, injured or internally displaced. And the fact that they've managed to come back from that and that peace you know, has managed to endure since the peace agreement was signed is admirable. And that gives me confidence that even if the PNG government somehow stalls or obfuscates that, that the Bougainville peace will hold and that there'll, there'll be patience in Bougainville to, to wait out, to, to let the Papua New Guinea government come around. And that I'm, I'm hopeful that that means that violence doesn't reoccur. Mm. I don't think anyone in Bougainville wants violence. So I think, and, you know, leaders have done a lot to, to try to, to, to prevent that happening. So I'm hopeful, but anything can happen. And I think if there's enough of a provocation at the P, from the PNG level, it's not unforeseeable. Hmm. It's going to put Australia in a very interesting position. Yeah, what, what are Australia's interests in all of this? Well, it, I mean, I know, I know Maurice Payne is actually in Bougainville today visiting as part of our visit to PNG. Unfortunately, in the press, it's been very much couched in terms of concerns about Bougainville's potential relationship with China if it oh, becomes independence. <laughs> but there's actually, you know, a lot more going on beyond that. It's going to put Australia in an interesting position because if the Bougainville vote is overwhelmingly in favour of independence, but the PNG government refuses to ratify the vote, Australia is going to face the decision. How much pressure do we put on PNG to ratify the vote versus maintaining our good relationship with PNG, which at the moment, you know, in geopolitical context is seen as important. And we also need to remember that the Manus Island processing centre and um, arrangements there do limit our manoeuvrability when it comes to the PNG government. That has really limited our influence over them. So there might be international pressure on us morally to support Bougainvillians if they overwhelmingly vote in favour of independence, but our own perceived national interest in maintaining good relations in PNG with PNG may may make that difficult for us. Yeah, and, and, and mentioning uh, Manus Island and using the term morality in the same sentence is kind of uncomfortable anyway, really. What has been the impact of Australia's offshore detention camps been on our prestige and our, our image in the region? I think there's a lot more concern in Australia and amongst the populations directly affected, so on Manus Island and on Nauru, about um, our approach to processing and resettling refugees than there has been more broadly in the Pacific. I think it doesn't do our, our standing in the Pacific any good to be doing what we do, but I don't know if it's quite... I think our stance on climate change does us much more damage than does our... Which, funnily enough, is my next question. <laughs> yeah. 
climate change is an issue for the whole world, but even more so for the small island states like we find in the South Pacific. What are the main concerns for the Pacific Islanders and what should Australia be doing better to address these concerns? Colin Beck, who's the Permanent Secretary of the Solomon Islands Ministry of External, um, sorry, Foreign Affairs and External Trade, was the keynote speaker at our workshop. And, you know, anyone who wants a masterclass in Pacific Islands geopolitics should listen to that um, keynote, which is available on the Bell School website. Um, And he very passionately made the case for why climate change is an existential threat to the Pacific. And although he didn't explicitly and I think he, you know, he used quite careful language, but he did question and use the language about, gen, you know, anal- drawing an analogy to almost verging on genocide, climate change, in terms of the threat that it poses to the Pacific. So it is an existential threat for Pacific Islanders. I mean, it is for everybody. The science, you know, the science is fairly settled. And 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 let's just to get really into the weeds. We're we're talking about the rising oceans. We're talking about changing weather patterns. We're talking talking about effect on the fish stocks and the ecology of the ocean here. And these are all issues that, as you said, are existential for these communities in the Pacific Islands. So it's not like these people can move to higher ground or start tilling crops or something like that. They they are constrained by their geography and they are now at the mercy of their geography and the environment because of climate change. And I often think that the impact that uh, climate change is having on these small island nations is really lost on a lot of Australians. Yeah, I mean, it's a lived experience for them. And this is why, I mean, this is part of the broader issue about how Australians speak to Pacific Islanders about geopolitics, because we need to, Australians need to remember that a military conflict is a much more distant threat to a Pacific Islander than climate change, which is happening right now. It's actually incredibly counterproductive that the approach that Australia takes to climate change, because although we have quite an extensive program aimed at assisting climate change adaptation and so forth in the Pacific, as long as our domestic policy suggests or raises doubts about our commitment to meeting our Paris Agreement targets, it really leaves us vulnerable in our discussions with Pacific Islanders because they quite rightly start to question our commitment to the region. As I think Colin Beck and I, as I say, I'm only paraphrasing and and I I refer listeners to his actual words, but, you know, he did make the point that if if you know that something is going to kill people and you continue to do it, well, what does that say? And, you know, it's it's quite a legitimate thing for Pacific Islanders to turn around to say to Australia, you know, we quite explicitly articulate our desire to be their primary security partner, but we're not taking action on the primary security threat to them. And it, it just seems entirely, you know, we can step up as much as we want. We can announce as much infrastructure spending. We can show up as much as we want. We can talk about Pacific Islands being our family. But I think all of us know that if our family member was continuing to do something that was causing us harm, we would have doubts about that family member's commitment to our well-being, and we might start to look at partners who speak in different terms and who are offering us different alternatives. I usually end off a lot of podcasts asking my guest uh, what their advice would be to the Australian government based on their expertise. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure I just heard it from you right now. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose I'd I'd say two things. I would say we need to change our domestic policy on climate change. And look, I recognise that domestic politics are fraught and, you know, that the recent election showed that perhaps it's not necessarily an issue that the electorate is quite as exercised about. 
But I think that Australia needs to evaluate how seriously it takes its concerns about Pacific geopolitics and about the changing international order and recognise that for for our standing in the Pacific, serious action on climate change is, is what is needed. And the second thing I would ask is, I would recommend to the, to the Australian government is to remember that Pacific Island states are sovereign independent states and that we need to, to deal with them on that basis and recognise that they do have agency and that they don't necessarily see the world in the same way as us and that finding middle ground with, with them is going to be much more productive than trying to, to focus only on what we think that they should be concerned about. Joanne Wallace, a fantastic discussion on a small but hugely important part of the world, especially for Australia. Thanks very much for coming in and chatting to us on the National Security Podcast. Thank you, Chris. Thanks very much to Joanne for the discussion, one that I know that a few senior advisors, analysts and policy makers here in Canberra will be listening to rather closely. Let's now move on to our final speaker for this episode and hear from Dr. Hiroyasu Akutsu from the National Institute of Defence Studies, Tokyo. Hiro is a senior fellow and professor at NIDS where he specialises in political and military issues on the Korean Peninsula and Northeast Asia, Japan-Australia Security Cooperation and the Japan-US Alliance. He has been a lecturer and visiting fellow at the Australian Defence Force Academy, Sophia University in Japan, Shandong University in Qingdao, China, and the Royal United Services Institute for Defence and Security Studies in London. I do wish to note at this point that Hiro does not speak in an official capacity, and all of the views expressed in this podcast are his own. Let's hear from Hiro now. G'day, Hiro. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me here today. Our pleasure. I'd like to start off by having a broad view of the way Japan looks at the region. Can you tell me that from Japan's perspective, what are the major drivers of change in the geopolitical landscape? Uh, at the global level, uh, it, it is obvious the rise of China uh, is one of the main factors. Uh, other factors include maybe the changes of leadership in the United States. Or, we are definitely going to be getting also, to that point. Yeah. <laughs> and also the real rise of Russia, uh, despite the fact that its population is shrinking, but uh, Russia wants to maintain its strategic assets and looking for a new pathway toward widening its strategic breathing space. Uh, and also uh, the rise of India. Uh, the factors include uh, North Korea's uh, nuclear missile. There are many, so many strategic uncertainties surrounding not just Japan, but at the global level. If you look to Europe, the Brexit, which no one could really predict uh, a few years ago. Uh, so uh, Japan is now dealing with so many and so intensive critical uh, security issues. Yes. Now, you mentioned uncertainty and, you know, some of these black swan events like Brexit. And one might also think that the election of President Donald Trump was a bit of a black swan event. Has the new administration and the nature of the Trump administration changed the way that Japan thinks about its national security? 
Well, uh, if you look at the U.S. Uh, strategic and policy documents, like the recent national security strategy, you know, it's very solid and uh, something that Japan has been quite familiar with. The U.S. still prioritizes security partnerships, you know, alliances, including Japan-U.S. alliance, which is a major strategic reassurance by the United States. And uh, basically, Japan's policy has been stable. There hasn't been major changes. Mm, so one, one of these slight uncertainties that we've seen emerge over the last couple of years is the negotiations uh, regarding the Korean Peninsula. Mm. How has Japan been viewing these negotiations between Donald Trump and Chairman Kim? Has Japan been seeing it quite pessimistically as in not expecting much change? Or has the strategic community in Japan had high hopes that we're about to see a shift for the better on the peninsula? Well... As for Japan's policy toward uh, North Korea, including the U.S.-North Korea relations, uh, the policy has been, again, quite stable and constant since early 2000s, actually. Uh, Japan's official policy has been to solve the abduction nuclear missile issues comprehensively and diplomatically, you know, peacefully. And our overall observation of the nature of the North Korean regime has also been very consistent. Yeah, not much uh, yeah, has changed. Despite there, has the it? changes of yeah. you know leadership, and uh, we are quite aware that North Korea has no interest in denuclearization uh, defined by the United States. You know, it has its own definition of denuclearization. Yeah, there seems to be some differ differences in expectations of what that word means on either side. Right. Now, now there, there's also one element within that relationship which uh, Japan has a uh, very differing experience than many other countries. You have had a number of nationals kidnapped by the North Korean mm. regime that have been taken prisoner and used as uh, intelligence sources or language training partners and so on. Does Japan feel that this, this specific issue is possibly going to be left behind if there is some kind of a deal between the US and North Korea? I think uh, I agree that there's been some kind of tension or concerns about uh, the possibility of the U.S. dealing with the North Korea, leaving uh, Japanese abduction issue behind. But due to Prime Minister Abe's personal and official engagement with uh, Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump's first issue raised uh, with uh, North Korea, uh, Kim Jong-un, in the recent summit was the abduction issue. Mm -hmm. So that shows Mr. Trump remembers the importance of the abduction issue uh, in Japanese policy toward North Korea. And that also confirms the degree of strength uh, between uh, Mr. Abe and uh, Mr. Trump. And that is, in many ways, a reassurance. Mm, I, I, I wonder if in the future we'll be calling that golf club diplomacy. <laughs> now, you, you, you mentioned uh, Russia as well. Now, there is an interesting relationship between Japan and Russia that many people, especially in Australia, probably aren't overly aware of. And, and that is the issue of the Northern Territories or, or the Kuril Islands, others may call it. And the, this, is, this is an issue that has been going on since World War II. Is, is this an absolutely intractable issue that's never going to go away? Or is there a possibility? Well, first off, actually, can you, can you explain to the listeners what 
what the issue is between Russia and Japan about the Northern Territories. And is this an issue that will have a solution one day or is this one of these intractable issues that's just never going to go away between Russia and Japan? Well, there are hopes to resolve the issue. But Japan's official stance is the return of the four islands. Uh, well, Russia has been suggesting to make some kind of agreement, which two and I'm, two. Not, I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, I'm here to uh, uh, speak for the, the official position of the Japanese government. But personally, the situation is very difficult because Russia knows how to you know, use this issue uh, to secure its position. Yeah, so just uh, as a bit of an explainer, these are four fairly decent-sized islands to the north of Japan that that run between Japan and the Russian territories in the Pacific. And as part of World War II, the Russians took control and and essentially took possession of these islands. And in international law, territory cannot be taken by force. And there is a disagreement between Russia and Japan as to who has sovereignty over these islands. So stretching the view out a little bit, how does Japan view the idea of the Indo-Pacific? Does Japan view it as the Indo-Pacific or is Japan still in a bit more of an Asia-Pacific perspective in terms of security policy? I think Japan's current view is much broader, or I would say it's expanding uh, even broader in space and cyber. You know, people talk about geography in terms of the Indo-Pacific a strategy uh, or initiative, but given that China wants to provide some telecommunications services to uh, those or who are involved in the Belt and Road initiative. Geography is a little bit more three-dimensional these days, or yes. may- maybe four-dimensional if you include cyber. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Mm. What, yeah. What, what kind of a partner does Japan see India for the future? That's a very crucial question. The relations have been very uh, stable and becoming even more uh, increasing the frequency of uh, naval exercises, uh, not just bilateral, but multilateral. As many in Australia are aware, aware of Quad, and Japan is looking to uh, make it more frequent. Yes, so, it's safe yes. to say that J- Japan is a supporter of the quadrilateral security dialogue. I think so. I think so mm. too, yes. Mm. yes. And, and this, this gives uh, an indication of, of how I would suggest that, as you said, Japan very much has uh, bought into this concept of the Indo-Pacific rather than Asia-Pacific and it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost... It is actually Mr. Abe who started this all, you know, since 2000. Seven, he talked about a confluence of uh, two seas. Yes, and, so. and implementing these policies, putting resources and budgets behind right. it to actually making it effective is always a little bit more of a challenge than writing the policy. Do you think Japan is succeeding in actually following through and implementing this policy? Uh, I believe so. I believe so. Uh, specifically, Japan has been providing you know what is called capacity building assistance to many countries and also providing some uh, defense technologies to India and other ASEAN countries uh, as well where uh, these are most needed. And on the economic cooperation, Japan's looking to uh, improve the quality program uh, as against uh, debt trap diplomacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Japan has been quite successful. But the major question is Again, the word of strategy. Now is the time to really st- strategize because Japan's open 
and free uh, Indo-Pacific is covering Africa, while uh, the U.S. version of the Indo-Pacific strategy doesn't necessarily cover a- Africa. Mm-hmm. So, and Australia has its own. Uh, India may have its own. It's very much a confluence of strategies Confluences. throughout yes. the Indo-Pacific. Yes. India's got its Act East policy. There's yes. two different free and open Indo-Pacific policies. That's we, right. we had our white paper. And China's also got its BRI as well, We're which right. I would yeah. say is, a, is, is one of the main drivers of sure. this confluence of strategies. Well, it's a wonderful time to be a strategic thinker in the Indo-Pacific. And Dr. Hirayasu Akutsu, thank you very much for joining us on the National Security Podcast. Thank you very much. And a big thanks to Hero, as well as thank you to Greta and Joanne for coming into the studio and chatting to us on the Indo-Pacific concept and how it relates to the countries in their area of expertise on the sidelines of this international conference at the National Security College at the ANU. It is obviously the geopolitical issue that is going to frame analysis and frame strategy for all of the countries east of Africa and west of the United States, north of Australia and south of Russia. We're pretty keen to hear from you. Not everybody agrees that the Indo-Pacific is a workable concept or is a concept the country should base their strategies upon. So if you disagree that the Indo-Pacific is something that Australia and other countries should be focusing on as a tool for creating strategy, hit us up and let us know your thoughts and we'll be happy to include them in future podcasts where we discuss this issue. You can do so by hitting us up at Twitter using Apps Policy Forum or at NatSecPod. You can join our Facebook group using Policy Forum Pod or you can drop us an email using podcast at policyforum.net. And coming up soon, we are going to be speaking on the emergence of cryptocurrencies and what that means for national security. We are also going to be having... Nick Rasmussen back into the studio. He is the former director for US counterterrorism and he was one of the few people that was shouting from the rooftops about threat of right-wing extremism prior to the Christchurch massacre, prior to the El Paso shooting and prior to the current focus on the threats that these groups pose. We will be speaking to Nick, we'll be speaking to an Australian scholar who focuses on right-wing extremism, Dr Christy Campion, and we'll also be speaking to a journalist from the ABC, Alex Mann, who was responsible for exposing the infiltration of right-wing extremist organisations into Australian political parties. We look forward to that, and we look forward to speaking to you again on the coming National Security Podcast. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 